Is this working? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Matt, thank you so much, not only for that very kind introduction, but thank you for your hospitality. The last 36 hours I've been in Columbus, Ohio, have been extremely um, active and uh, rich with uh, both intellectual contact but also establishing friendships with really a wonderful community, the academic community, the Jewish community that I've met here. I'm, I'm deeply impressed, and uh, this is my first time in Columbus, and I certainly hope it will not be my last. Um, what I'm going to share with you today in um, probably about 40 minutes or so is the beginning of what will be one chapter in a book that I'm writing that's tentatively titled Uniform Identities, Jews in the Military, 1648-1948. And um, what I want to do is just lay out very briefly the mise-en-scene for the book as a whole. Um, the, basically, the argument is because I start off, most of my projects start off with a question from Israeli history, and then I go back in time and I go across space. And the Zionist project appears in many ways to have broken radically with, with, with the Jewish past. But normally, if you look under the surface, you find areas of continuity between some aspect of Jewish experience and things that happened in Palestine in the 20th century. Now, the one exception to this appears to be uh, the military ethos, the creation of the Israeli army, uh, and the Israeli military's often stunning successes since 1948 because Jews have had a historic self-image of themselves as Jacob, the biblical story of Jacob and Esau, the Jews' self-image of themselves as Jacob, the, um, the simple man who dwells in tents, right, as opposed to his rapacious brother uh, Esau. And so the Jews' historic self-image has been of a, a peaceful people, non-aggressive people. And then in anti-Semitic discourse, Jews have often been presented in history as cowardly, timid, meek, and although malevolent, the malevolence is accomplished uh, um, surreptitiously. That is, the Jew uh, always, basically the, the notion of the Jew is as, as someone who stabs you in the back, the Jew is poisoner, the Jew as conspirator. Jews themselves internalized this anti-Semitic, I think, motif through the constellation of um, the Jews' own historic self-image and then the historic reality of the experience of Jews in 19th century Russia, where Jews did not really feel that they belonged to the body politic, where they were conscripted in large numbers, and where their experience in the military was rather dreadful, uh, at least until 1874, when the term of service was reduced from 25 years to six years. Um, now, Jews weren't the only people who suffered in the Russian army in the 19th century. Nobody wanted to be in the Russian army in the 19th century. And in fact, one chapter of my book is about that, which is, although there's a great deal of literature written about Jews as draft dodgers, well, everybody tried to dodge the draft. In fact, I'll get to that more in just a minute. Um, but this is the mise-en-scene for the book, is that there's this kind of self-image of Jews as peaceful people, and then in the Russian experience, doing everything they could to evade the, the draft. And I heard, in fact, was it, when I gave the community talk yesterday, uh, Gordy Zaks, says, when my great uncle fled the Tsar's army. That's the beginning of his narrative. I have heard that narrative so many times. And I know from studying Jewish social history that actually the Jewish rates of immigration were closely tied to income. It was poor people who left. I mean, maybe the Tsar's army was only part of the story. Um, but that is not the whole story because the Russian case is the exception and not the norm. Jews in countries where they were emancipated, where they became part of the body politic, 
They volunteered for military service. They went when they were conscripted. They often served. It's not just a question of being apologetic and saying they served with distinction. For Jews in many Western and Central European countries in modern times, the army, the military, was a completely legitimate and normal livelihood. I even have a chapter in the book titled My Son the Soldier. Because in Italy, France, the Habsburg Empire, it, Jews were re overrepresented by a considerable faction in the officer corps. And it was a perfectly normal thing, for example, in late 19th century France for a Jew to become an army officer, a, a career soldier. It was completely normal. And those Jews were involved in their consistories, and they wrote for the Jewish newspapers, and they married other Jews, and they lived as Jews. But they were also generals and colonels and captains. There was one unfortunate captain named Alfred Dreyfus. There were several hundred others who you don't hear about. So my book is going to try to address that. Um, so that's the mise-en-scene for the book as a whole. But what I want to talk about today is the specific problem of Jews as conscripts and volunteers in modern armies who are then faced in the, uh, with the difficult prospect of facing other Jews in war, uh, something which simply hadn't been a problem previously and which is actually a problem that affects other ethnic groups. It's a problem that affects Poles, after all, in Germany, Habsburg Empire, and Russia in World War I. It affects Ukrainians. Um, and my colleague in Polish history at U of T and I have been talking quite a bit about this. What I'm arguing in this chapter is that it's precisely when Jews assert patriotism in its most extreme form, which is service in the military, going to war, and risking life and limb, it's precisely at these moments of the assertions of patriotism that their transnational ethnic ties become most apparent. So my argument is kind of counterintuitive, but it's what I want to try to establish in, in 40 minutes or so. So just to begin with some facts, Jewish conscription begins in the late 1700s, 1788, in the Josephinian Habsburg Empire, becomes a mass phenomenon during the Revolutionary Wars, where by 1803 there are about 15,000 Jews serving under the Habsburg flag. Uh, military service for Jews, of course, is extended to France. As soon as the French Revolution breaks out, Jews in Bordeaux and Paris are rushing to serve in the National Guard. And the yearning for integration into the patrie leads to the famous statement made in 1806 by the Assembly of Notables, a body of rabbis called together by Napoleon to discuss the civil status of Jews in France. And in the Assembly of Notables, this is what the assembled had to say about the Jews' military spirit. And this is a quote I'm going to come back to uh, again. The love of country is in the heart of the Jews a sentiment so natural, so powerful, and so consonant in their religious opinions that a French Jew considers himself in England as amongst strangers, although he may be amongst Jews. And the case is the same for English Jews in France. To such a pitch is this sentiment carried amongst them that during the last war, so the revolutionary wars, French Jews have been seen fighting desperately against other Jews, the subjects of countries then at war with France. Many of them are covered with honorable wounds and others have obtained in the field of honor the noble rewards of bravery. And you find similar declarations in the German lands during the Napoleonic Wars. And leaders of the German Jewish community implore German Jewish youth to volunteer for service, largely in order to achieve um, civic equality. As David Friedlander, a radical reform-oriented leader in late or early 19th century Germany, proclaims, hand in hand with your fellow soldiers, you will complete your great task 
they will not deny you the title of brother as you will have earned it. And it wasn't just German Jewish leaders who wrote this way, also volunteers, young men who went off to war, wrote letters home to their parents expressing sentiments such as the following. My heart pounds with joy, so thankful am I to be able to prove myself to ruler and fatherland. Now, of course, there are Jews in Napoleonic Germany and elsewhere in Europe who don't particularly want to get killed uh, in battle. And uh, there was also the considerable objection about the ability to perform religious commandments in military service, daily prayer, uh, keeping uh, a kosher uh, diet, and Shabbat observance, keeping the Jewish Sabbath. What's very interesting, though, is that even highly orthodox rabbis were very lenient on the issue of Sabbath observance. And I won't go into, if this were the Melton Center, I'd go into the whole halachic justification, but suffice it to say that they were able to get out of the Sabbath observance. Uh, Other things were considered much more serious, like kashrut. Um, As I mentioned at the very beginning of my remarks, though, opposition to military service is not unique to Jews. And if you look at early 19th century Germany during the time of the Napoleonic Wars, the sons of middle-class families in southern Germany, for example, did all kinds of things to avoid conscription, like shooting themselves in the toe, cutting off a finger, starving themselves, all the sorts of things which have become part of Jewish family folklore that people did to get out of the Tsar's army, German youth were doing in the early 19th century. Most peasants did not want to send their children away to the military anyway. They were afraid it would coarsen their manners, which tells you something about the military's um, uh, culture, and would take them from the farm where they were needed. And so it's not surprising, if, to the extent that Jews did dodge the draft in the 19th century, um, one thing I'll be doing is comparing Jewish call-up rates and show-up rates with those of other uh, ethnic minorities in the Russian Empire and the Habsburg Empire, the circumstantial evidence I've seen so far suggests that you know, Jews are not the only people who try to get out of military service. What's also interesting is that Orthodox rabbis were often in the lead in proclaiming that Jews must fulfill their military duty. Uh, Yechezkel Landau, the famous rabbi of Prague in 1789, speaks to young Jewish conscripts, and this is what he tells them. Go to your destiny Follow without complaint, be loyal and patient, so that people will see that even our nation, oppressed until now, loves its rulers and government authorities. So it's this very traditional Jewish notion of obeisance to Gentile authority. Now, the rabbi most commonly associated with ultra-Orthodoxy, Moses Sofer, the Chatam Sofer, argues in the 1830s very specifically that all Jews must serve in the military and that they must not evade conscription orders. He invokes the principle of Dina de Malkuta Dina, the rabbinic principle that the law of the land must be observed as law. And he classifies military service as a form of taxation, traditionally within the Gentile ruler's purview. Dina de Malkuta Dina then jives nicely with the modern state's concept of conscription described by military historian Donald Keegan as a tax levied upon a male resident's time at a certain stage of his life. The Khatam Sofer urged Jews to try to buy their way out of service if possible, but if it was not possible, they must go. Uh, and moreover, he argued against the common community practice of using the social sort of uh, dregs to fulfill conscript requirements. So he said, communities must not hand over social undesirables, quote, even if they are adulterers or Sabbath violators, unquote, to the army. You get called up. If you can't buy your way out honestly, 
you go. Now, this is a tremendous turn in rabbinic thinking because military service does not, let's be frank, have the same valence as tax. The consequences of Jews in every land paying taxes to the state are not the same as as those of Jews in every land joining armies that could combat one's own nation and bring Jews into mortal combat against each other. As the 18th century Bohemian rabbi Shmuel ben Natan Halevi wrote in his super commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, which is a major, um, most important commentary, a code of modern of Jewish law, he writes, Jews praying for the well-being of their king may not pray for his foreign enemy's downfall, lest Jews elsewhere do the same. The result being an ineffectual and inappropriate prayer known in rabbinic, uh, rabbinic uh, vocabularies as tefillat shav, um, which is described already in the Mishnah Brachot, uh, uh, chapter 9, uh, uh, number 3. Prayers that, cast, that God cast down the king's enemies, he argues, must be limited to foes within the kingdom. Now, if prayer presents a problem of conflicting supplications for the application of divine power, how much more so in the case of Jews actually fighting against each other on the field of battle in time of war? Now, Aside from the Assembly of Notables statement, the fact is during the Revolutionary Wars, there weren't that many Jews fighting in armies in Europe. So it wasn't really an issue. It wasn't a morally difficult issue that, that Jews might fight other Jews in war. Um, and yet already one finds a sort of a distinction between the way Jews approach going into war and perhaps those of Gentiles, even though it's very difficult to make these sorts of generalizations. If you compare like rabbinic sermons in Napoleonic Germany with Protestant sermons. Uh, the rabbinic sermons specify duty, and they talk about the privileges or the rights that will be accrued to those who serve. There's very little of the language of demonizing the enemy. Uh, there's very little excoriation of the regicidal French. In fact, the enemy is hardly ever mentioned. Perhaps this is some sort of a echo of the earlier theme I was talking about. One doesn't find the kind of hyper-patriotism that you associate with the Teutonomania of Father Jan or Prussian officials in the early 19th century. Um, If you look at rabbinic sermons also in Britain in the early 19th century, there is a kind of a dwelling on the horrors of war and a statement that God, that God is, the same God is worshipped by all all the combatants. So there is this emphasis on serving in the military, but it seems to lack a demonization of the enemy and a exaltation in, um, in combat. Now, That said, the specific issue of Jews fighting other Jews does not come up in the early 19th century, but it does come up, and not, as one might think, first in the Civil War in the United States, although it does come up there. The key event in European history where we have the problem of Jews confronting each other in battle is 1848, the revolutions of 1848, where you have Jews fighting in revolutionary forces, but also Jews fighting in the regular forces. And we start with two pieces here, written in the Allgemeine Zeitung des Judentums, one of the most important Jewish newspapers in Europe, by its formidable editor, the long-lived Ludwig Philipson. And in the newspaper, he reproduces a sermon, Passover 1848. He denies that Jews comprise a corporate body among nations. Jews in France, he writes, are French. Co-religionists in Germany are Germans. And he says, quote, should two nations enter us into a struggle today, we do not ask, are there Jews in the enemy army? We do not ask. We fight. We fight against them. 
Ten months later, Philipson turns again to this theme in another sermon, asserting that throughout the vast bulk of their history, Jews live in diaspora, and although their enemies accuse them of forming a unified cabal, he writes, rather disingenuously, he writes, what are we? A scattered, powerless mass without force or energy. And what proof does he derive for the fact that Jews are this powerless mass without energy? Quote, in the battle camps of fighting nations, there are now frequently Jews standing as enemies against each other and not hesitating as brave soldiers to engage in armed conflict against themselves. So we have here an assertion of ongoing Jewish commonality, if not solidarity, a sense expressed far more pointedly in his newspaper's correspondent from Pest's columns from 1848. And I don't know who this person was because like so many newspapers in the 19th century, the columns are anonymous. Sometimes you can figure it out, but anyway. The Pest correspondent writes in the spring of 1849, Jews combine aspects of nation, religion, and ethnic community, or in German, Stamm. He says, quote, the solidarity of the Jews, which has played such a great, albeit in former times, natural role, still exists. And now where Jews find themselves in two opposed camps, it will always be felt in the one when Jews play a role in the other camp. So the Jews are clearly a unified group, even if they're fighting against each other. And there is a pleading, literally pathetic note, in his plea for Gentiles to accept Jews based on the sacrifices they're willing to make for their homelands. I'm going to read a quotation that's a little long, but I think it's quite, it's filled with pathos. There stands the army of the Croatian viceroy, in which there are Jews enough present as fighters, and there lies Croatia, in which stand Croatian Jews in the National Guard, ready to defend against the foe. And here there stream thousands of Jews into the Hungarian camp, brought together under the Levéan mass, the Landsturm, observing neither Sabbath nor holiday nor dietary laws. They have forgotten that they were scornfully driven out of the National Guards. They do not think that only a few weeks ago they were fallen upon, plundered, and persecuted. They do not remember that only a little while ago rights were given to them and then taken away. The fatherland is in danger, freedom is threatened, and they struggle to fight, to battle, to defend, to die. When will the scales fall from your eyes, O people? When will prejudice be wiped from your hearts? Do you still say we are a separate nation when in the two hostile camps Jews take up weapons against other Jews? I love this. We have forgotten that. You know, it's, this is the classic sign when someone says that, you know they've forgotten nothing. It reminds me of a great statement of David, David Ben-Gurion uh, where he says, I want the Yemenite Jews in Israel to forget they are Yemenite just as I have forgotten that I am Polish. <laughs> he has forgotten nothing. There's a big difference between forgetting and suppression. But in this remarkable tirade that I've just read to you, the Jews' suitability for inclusion in the body politic is based on their willingness to fight on all sides of the revolutionary conflict. For Croatia, against Hungary's struggle for independence, for the Hungarians, you name it. The Jews' willingness to fight on any side at any time for any land that will accept them produces a disturbing sense of a mercenary who is paid in rights rather than money. A further example of this linkage between patriotism, the military, and the pursuit of Jewish collective interest emerges baldly from the actions of the Viennese Jewish community in April of 1849 when it took up a subscription to purchase a warship for the Imperial Navy and christen it with the name Emancipation. And by the way, I checked the Imperial Viennese War Archive. 
no ship with that name was ever built. But I looked into the reasons why. And the reasons why the Viennese community <clears throat> even had the chutzpah to do this was because the Habsburgs had lost most of their fleet uh, when the Italians, basically, the, the Habsburg Navy was mostly Italian manned, and they just took off with their fleet during the Revolution of 1848. And, uh, you know, when Venice, uh, they, they, when they lost their birth in Venice. So I think the Habsburgs were looking for ships. Anyway, so if we move on in time into the Austro-Prussian War, we find, uh, again, more assertions of this sort of commonality of Jews in battle. In the Austro-Prussian War, rabbis in the Habsburg Empire delivered stirring sermons that were revealingly vague in the designation of the Jewish historic object of loyalty. There's one sermon in particular I was quite taken by, by a bohemian rabbi named Adolf Ehrenthal, who presents the Jews as a military people, but he does not, as Zionist ideologues would do, hearken to ancient Israel. He doesn't even mention ancient Israel, what he harkens on is the Jews as soldiers of empire. Going back to Hellenistic times, going back to ancient Rome, he talks about the days of Justinian when Jews combated the Goths. He talks about Jews helping conquer Naples under the command of the Thracian general Belisar. The Jew always fights for his homeland, whatever it might be. And I'll quote him briefly. The Jewish soldier knows like any other how to bear arms. He knows how to use them bravely. And when the fatherland calls, he will not stray in cowardly fashion from the path towards death. For when the voice of the patriarch Jacob says, Judah, your brothers will praise you, which is Genesis 49.8, it does not wish to encourage virtuous deeds only in peacetime. No. Only towards the end of the sermon does he specifically refer to the Austrian homeland, but the political message of the sermon has nothing to do with the enemy or the war itself so much as that death in battle will prove Jewish worthiness for equality. Adolf Jelinek did something very similar. He was a much, probably the most famous um, Viennese rabbi of the later 19th century. And he did something similar where he goes back to the Jews' role in conquering. Um, basically, he claims that Jewish generals decided Julius Caesar's battle against the Egyptians. And some of this, by the way, some of this is true. I was, you know, if I talk to people who do ancient Jewish history, it's exaggerated, of course. But there certainly were... Um, uh, Jewish forces and Jewish officers in the ancient Roman Empire. I mean, that's, that's not uh, an exaggeration. Now, what we have here then is a kind of an, a high apologetics in which Jewish military service is seen as a contribution to the homeland, to the fatherland. It's part of the whole counting and glorification of Jewish soldiers that occurs in many lands, not just the Habsburg Empire at the time. Uh, Germany, France, the United Kingdom, Habsburg Empire there is um, an obsession with historical studies of Jewish military volunteerism. And this reaches its pinnacle during the time of the Franco-Prussian War when Ludwig Philipson lists every single one of the 4,700 Jews who served in the North German Confederation during that war. And then even he is outdone by a massive folio-sized tome published in Berlin in 1896 called The Jew as Soldier. What's really interesting about this book, it's a huge book, is that it highlights German Jewry, but it has chapters on every country in the world. And it lists the names of army officers, Jewish army officers in every country in the world. And some of the stuff is fascinating, like the numbers of French Jewish military officers, including the governor of the French Congo, who was a Jew, before he died of malaria after six months in office. Poor guy. Um, but what I found so odd about the book is that the Jew who fights for France is literally alongside of the Jew who fights for Germany and the Jew who fights for Austria and the Jew who fights for Italy. Um, 
even Jews, countries that are frequently enemies, are all of a piece. And this kind of unified apologetic uh, is found also in the great work of Judaic scholarship of the early 20th century, the Jewish Encyclopedia. Now, this is an Anglo-American uh, project, but if you look in the long general article on army and in the biographical entries about colorful and heroic Jewish officers, and by the way, there's many, many entries in the Jewish Encyclopedia of 1901 to 1906 on army officers, they almost play the role in the Jewish encyclopedia that Hollywood movie stars play in the Encyclopedia Judaica of 1969, 1970. Sort of, instead of Danny Kaye, you know, you get, you get some, you know, a, a French general. And, and they have that same role, sort of being colorful and interesting, and they tell cute stories about them. And I won't go into all of the article's entries, but suffice it to say that it's the same thing about going back to empire, uh, about the Jews' basic noble and warrior spirit. And uh, the article on the army draws very heavily on Heinrich Gretz's magisterial 11-volume History of the Jews. The article itself for the Judaic scholars in the room, I should just mention, was written by none other than Richard Gottheil, Morris Jastrow, Jr., and Kaufman Kohler. These were big names in Judaic scholarship in the early 20th century. They're the ones who were marshaled to write the article on army, which is very, very long, one of the longest articles in the encyclopedia. Um, the article goes into great depth about Jewish imperial activity, Jewish defense of Prague, ruled by the Habsburgs against the Swedes. Then we have the Jews defending Ofen, ruled by the Ottomans against the Habsburgs four decades later. So again, it doesn't really matter where the Jews are. All that matters is that they are brave. This robust universalism then, um, I thought, reached a particularly humorous um, a pinnacle in a sermon called L'Esprit Militaire des Juifs, delivered appropriately enough during Hanukkah, of 1903 by the chief rabbi of Belgium, Armand Bloch. Jumping across time and borders, Bloch claims that the Jewish soldier, regardless of where he lives, quote, gives testimony to the lofty and grand spirit of tolerance of Jews who consider the first of their duties, even before that of religion, the obligation towards the homeland. This is the chief rabbi of Belgium. Okay. Now, I think I made my point. Now let's go back to Aaron Tyle's sermon and reread it. In his citation of Jacob's deathbed blessing of Judah, Aaron Tyle reproduces only the first phrase, leaving the verse's conclusion, your hand shall be on your enemy's neck, your father's son shall bow down low to you, not mentioned. Many a listener would have known this celebrated verse by heart, along with its successor, Judah is a lion's whelp, on prey my son have you grown. He crouches, lies down like a lion, like the king of beasts who dare rouse him. Now, was this allusion intentional? Did Aaron Tyle wish to avoid any hint of malice and bloodlust? Or was he rather afraid of slipping over that very fine line, dividing Jewish valor in the service of the fatherland and the might of the Jewish people to whom his brothers would in time bow? For in the European wars that followed, rabbis and activists routinely referred to fighting Jews as new Maccabeans long before Zionism. Rabbis in Europe were referring to Jews as Maccabeans. You see this already in the Polish legions fighting in, which, which were rebelling so often. I think it's Krakow, uh, 1845, 1846, something like that. So we have, I think, a potential for a real assertion of Jewish unity, precisely in the assertion of Jewish patriotism. And the tension between patriotism and Jewish solidarity and the demands of the state is quite tragically expressed in a story 
published in L'Univers Israelit, the official journal of the French-Jewish Central Consistory in 1871, just after the Franco-Prussian War. It's really a beautiful story that I'll summarize for you. It was a long story serialized in two parts. The setting is an old synagogue at the beginning of the weekday evening service in a countryside occupied by enemy forces who have pillared and plundered the terrain. There's no place name. There are no names. It could be anywhere. It's like a Twilight Zone episode. And I'll get to this question of anonymity and of lack of anotopality, if you make up a word, in just a minute. An enemy soldier and a sickly lad enter the synagogue at the same time. Both are mourners and both need to say the prayer for the dead, the Kaddish. The boy is an orphan, his father killed in the recent conflict. The enemy Jewish soldier is deeply disturbed by this. And after the prayers are over, the soldier lingers. He approaches the rabbi. The rabbi greets him with an unattributed phrase from the biblical book of Joshua. Are you one of us, although you are of the enemy? Joshua 5, verse 13. The Jewish soldier is conscience-stricken that his actions may have caused the death of the other Jew, and he laments at great length that he was forced into this war where he may have killed this young Jewish boy's father. And the rabbi then responds with a parable in true rabbinic fashion about a king with two sons. Those of you who studied Midrash know it's always about a king and his sons. So the king has two sons, both of them hateful, spiteful, and arrogant, France and Germany. And that's what we're getting at. The king banishes the sons. They eventually settle in separate lands, and in time they overcome their evil ways. But the lands go to war, and it's decided that each side will produce one champion in medieval-style individual combat. And whoever wins that battle, that will determine the fate of the war as a whole. So what happens, of course, these brothers are chosen to fight. One strikes a blow that causes the other to drop his weapon. Then they look each other in the face, realize that they're brothers, fall on each other's neck, they do not kill each other, and the two nations are unified in eternal peace. Now, this story is schmaltzedic, sentimental, but it's also deeply moving, but also, I think, quite chutzpahdic, quite arrogant, because we have a situation in which Jews are portrayed as the saviors of humanity. The Jew as a collective takes on the quality of the solitary champion. Liberal universalism is performed through an aristocratic cultural practice of medieval combat. We learn from this story that when Jews are forced to fight each other, the fate of humanity rests on the struggle. The rabbi tells the soldier, Jews must fight with courage, scorn death, and strive to win glory for their race. But they must also honor their enemy and prepare for the day when war shall cease. The rabbi says, quote, if in combat you prove yourself to be an intrepid warrior, you show yourself to be a true Israelite. If after battle you behave like an upstanding Israelite, you prove that you're a true soldier. The rabbi bids the soldier farewell, calling him my noble enemy. Now, one could argue that the internationalist message of this story is peculiarly French. In his book, The Gentle Civilizer of Nations, Marty Koskeniemi, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, there are people here who probably know his work better than I do, documents the long intellectual tradition in France encompassing Saint-Simon, Comte, and Durkheim that perceived international engagement as serving national interests and of internationalism as the highest form of patriotism. Moreover, Lisa Leff has recently argued that among French Jews, mid-19th century notions of solidarity envisioned international linkages amongst Jews not as an end in themselves so much as a means for the unification of all humanity. To borrow language from Benedict Anderson, 
whereas in previous centuries, solidarity had connoted the corporate autonomy and liability of a bounded seriality, that is, Jews in a particular community, now the seriality became unbounded, borderless yet finite, that is, world Jewry blends into humanity as such. Um, I don't know yet. I'm still finishing my research, but I think that there are limits to French internationalism. There are certainly limits to French Jewish internationalism because in the wake of the Franco-Prussian War, French calls for revanche, no less than the exultant chauvinism of the Germans, eroded liberal faith and progress towards a reign of perpetual peace. In the aftermath of the war, Isidore Kayen, editor of Les Archives Israelites, expressed deep concern for the future of Jews in Alsace-Lorraine, torn between increasingly implacable foes. And I won't go on about this, but there's a considerable literature in the French Jewish press after the war about how the linkages between French and German Jewry have been sundered and how difficult it will be to reestablish them. But there's a further complication. Remember how I referred to this story as being without place name, quite anonymous, mysterious? The story was not written in French. The story was a translation and expansion of a prose poem published in the Israelitische Wochenschrift in Magdeburg in 1871. The poem itself had been mailed anonymously to the newspaper's editor, postmarked Brno. The fact that the national origin of the poem about war is murky and indeterminate nicely illustrates this point about the nature of Jewish cosmopolitan patriotism. Moreover, German-Jewish apologetic literature had no qualms about boasting about the prowess of French Jews, including those who went to war against German co-religionists. So I'm talking about a kind of a transnationality which is actually asserted in the moment of patriotism. And one could argue, well, this certainly comes to an end with World War I. Because in World War I, you have Jews who really begin truly demonizing the enemy to the point that um, assertions of Jewish transnationality might become hard to make. After all, it is in Germany where a Jew, Ernst Lissauer, writes the notorious Haskazang Naked, naked, sorry, I'm thinking in Hebrew. Gegen England, a, a poem so vitriolic that anti-Semites would claim that only a Jew could have written it. You can't win. A convert from Judaism, Fritz Haber, assisted by a mostly Jewish staff, developed chlorine gas and its delivery system for trench warfare. Victor Klemperer, whose World War II diary is well known for its trenchant observations about the Nazis, made some rather nasty comments of his own when he was younger, writing that the German cause in World War I was just and that for every German soldier who fell in battle, he prayed that an English civilian would be killed by a Zeppelin. The philosopher Martin Buber accused Belgian women of defiling German corpses and claimed that the war would unite Germans and Jews in their great mission to civilize the Middle East. Incipit vita nuova wrote Buber upon the outbreak of the war, obscenely citing Dante's words upon first citing Beatrice. At the tender age of 19, the future Zionist leader Nahum Goldman penned a propaganda brochure on the splendors of German militarism. His views were shared by many prominent Jews, including the Orthodox rabbi Joseph Karlbach, who wrote in 1915 that the German military should be a model for the raising of Orthodox children. On the battlefield, at least some German-Jewish soldiers felt powerful solidarity with their Gentile fellow fighters, glorified the community of soldiers, and believed in heroic death. death. Meanwhile, in France, rabbinic sermons painted the German foe in the blackest of hues, associating it with Amalek and even Satan. 
1916, Univers Israelite produced a powerful parody of the biblical creation story with, quote, the good old German god, an officer of the hussars of death with handlebar mustache and saber who called out one day, let the depths be, and there were depths. He created in turn poison gas to kill men, fire bombs to destroy houses, zeppelins and the 420 cannon to bombard open cities. And seeing that his work was evil, he was pleased. That's the quotation from the article from the French Jewish newspaper. The evil god then sets out an inverted decalogue commanding men to steal, rape, murder, and covet. Okay, this looks pretty bad then in terms of Jewish transnational solidarity. However, even here the picture is complicated. What about East European Jewish immigrants in both the United Kingdom and France? They were willing to fight for France, but not for England. Same East European Jewish immigrants, and yet in Great Britain, where there were some 30,000 young Jewish men born in Russia and collectively exempt from conscription, they vigorously resisted calls for conscription, refusing to fight on behalf of the oppressive czar and refusing to kill fellow Jews in the Triple Alliance. But in France, on the other hand, the same East European immigrant Jews, although banned as non-citizens from serving in the French army, streamed to volunteer for the Foreign Legion. The Jewish immigrants in France supported the war as a struggle against what they called autocratic and feudal Germany and Austria, which they also called in their, called in their propaganda brochures in Yiddish the main forces of imperialism in the world. The embarrassing fact that France and England were actually the world's greatest imperial powers <laughs> and that they were allied with Russia was not mentioned. In France, Jewish immigrants were captivated by the national myth of France as the birthplace of revolution. In England, the established Anglo-Jews invoked the Maccabean spirit and were ignored. In France, it was the East European Jewish immigrants themselves who called themselves Maccabeans and went off to fight in the Foreign Legion. There's also this issue that I won't go into in depth here because it's really more for another chapter about the wartime, the real wartime experiences of Jews as opposed to what rabbis write. And this is chapter five of the book. This is chapter four you're getting now. Chapter five is where I actually look at soldiers' diaries in World War I. I look at letters home. And frankly, um, I think this is probably as true for soldiers in general. I'm not saying this is true for Jews. I mean, it's very hard to tell much from soldiers' letters and soldiers' diaries because of censorship and self-censorship. And they often write about humdrum things. And they often say, I cannot describe what I've seen. Even if they're not trying to censor themselves, they, there's a, a mental block against describing what they've seen. But um, German Jewish soldiers, there's a few exceptions. And I've read an awful lot of memoirs. Even after the fact, they rarely exult in battle. I mean, you, you, you don't have an Ernst Junger type uh, Stahlgewitter, Storm of Steel type um, ethos in the writings of German Jewish soldiers and officers. There's one exception that I found. I mean, you can always find a few. But by and large, it seems that German Jewish military service in World War I is still carried out within that framework of serving the state in order to prove one's worthiness and fight against anti-Semitism and so forth. And after all, if we accept the current trend in writing on the First World War, which assumes that in Germany very few people were enthusiastic about the war, that the enthusiasm was short-lived and limited to the cities, then if the Jews aren't terribly enthusiastic about the war, you know, we should not be surprised. But what I really want to emphasize here are these ongoing bonds, even during war, between German and French Jews. If you look at the published diary of Julius Marx, there's an entry from September 1916. He tells of a conversation with a French farmer whose home Marx and some companions had requisitioned for high holiday prayers. 
Marx asks the farmer what he thinks they're praying for. The farmer says, well, um, I think you're praying for the German fatherland, just as those French Jews are praying for France. Marx says, do you know many French Jews? Not many, but my company commander back then, he was a Jew. No officer in the regiment was as beloved as he. He's a general now, fighting somewhere for poor France. This clearly bothered Marx, the relative stature of French Jews in the military versus Germany. So eight months later, Marx is visiting a Jewish acquaintance in Valenciennes. The French Jew asks Marx, why aren't you an officer yet? And Marx replies defensively that he doesn't want to be one, but there are plenty of German Jewish officers, which there were. In World War I, finally, Jews could be commissioned officers. His French interlocutor is skeptical. He tells Marx about having quartered some German soldiers in his home, but not telling them he was Jewish, and goading them to speak their mind about the Jews. The French Jew tells Marx he was very happy to hear how intolerant, thick-headed, and mean-spirited the German soldiers were, because such people, so concerned with rank and class, must lose the war. Seeking the last word, Marx invokes the Dreyfus Affair, which he claims could not have happened in Germany. If you lose the war, the Frenchman responds, and you will lose it, then Germany will be ripe for such affairs. Now, what's happening? Marx is jotting these things down in a diary, reproducing a long-standing French-Jewish discourse of pity and condescension towards German Jews for being excluded from the officer corps and the status it conferred. And these feelings were reproduced on a global scale, and this is my last sort of major point, during the 1930s, when Jewish veterans the world over joined forces to publicly condemn the persecution of German-Jewish veterans under the Nazi regime. These protests were issued within a framework of interlocking Jewish veterans organizations, founded from the early 1920s through the mid-1930s. On one level, this phenomenon was an extension of the general international veterans movements that organized fighters from formerly combatant countries to advance both their own economic interests and a broader pacifist agenda. The Paris-based Association Républicaine des Anciens Combattants, founded in 1919, had a broad pacifist agenda and a communist orientation. In 1920, at its founding conference, the British delegation proposed they only speak Esperanto, just to give you a sense of who these people were. The association didn't last long. But the politically more moderate Fraternité Interalliée des Anciens Combattants, founded in 1920, represented all the major French, British, Italian, and American veterans organizations with a combined membership of over 8 million. Similarly, the Jewish veterans organizations maintained extensive personal and institutional contacts. In 1925, a memorial service in Paris for the French-Jewish war dead, especially those in the Foreign Legion who died at the Battle of Carency, received favorable attention in the newspaper of the German Reichsbund Jüdische Freundsoldaten. As a rule, the sundry Jewish veterans organizations' journals reported on each other's activities. And when the Austrian uh, Bund Jüdische Freundsoldaten, so that Jewish World War I vets organization, was founded in 1935, it received warm greetings from Jewish veterans organizations in Bulgaria, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and the United States. At the first International Conference of Jewish War Veterans in Paris in 1935, held four months before the Nuremberg Laws, and representing some 400,000 individuals, the assembled delegates vowed, like their counterparts in general veterans groups, to strive for understanding amongst the nations. So you might say, fine, no different from the Gentile veterans. But there's always a difference, and here's the difference. In addition to appealing to the common war experience, 
to promote international reconciliation, the Jewish veterans were always asserting as a collective their military honor. So you have the hyper-patriotic Reichsbund Jüdische Fondsoldaten, whose newspaper Der Schild is a basically an apologetic journal, glorifying French Jewish soldiers in World War I, American Jewish soldiers in World War I, English Jewish soldiers, and so on. Um, I should, though, admit that one article in Der Schild, and I say this for the Judaica scholars in the room, claimed that Anglo-Saxon Jewish uh, prowess always has a German point of origin because Sir John Monash, commander-in-chief of the Australian expeditionary force in the war, was the nephew of none other than Heinrich Gretz, the great German-Jewish historian. I have a theory, by the way, that everything in Jewish history comes back to Heinrich Gretz. Um, every single person I've ever written about read him and was influenced by him. But the peculiar features of the Jewish international veterans movement became even more evident after the Nazi seizure of power in Germany. The Reichsbund Jüdische Fondsoldaten was forcibly disbanded in 1935. And at the international gathering of Jewish veterans groups in Paris, there was tremendous outpouring of sympathy for the German Jewish veterans. The Austrian Jewish Federation even went so far as to proclaim the desire to establish in Palestine a village for the orphans of the 12,000 German Jewish soldiers who died in military service during the war. It was going to be called Das Dorf der 12,000 or something, which wouldn't sound terribly good in Hebrew, even more clunky than it does in, um, in German. Um, the gesture was partly philanthropic, but overwhelmingly commemorative and apologetic. And this is what the Bund, the Austrian German, uh, sorry, the Austrian World War I Jewish Veterans Federation had to say about this village. This village, a monument to the fallen, a refuge for their persecuted children, will become in its name and in the fact of its establishment by Jewish soldiers of the entire world, of the entire world, a monument to the eternal disgrace of this Germany, which rewards life sacrifice with perfidy. Jews who died for one fatherland, in other words, died for them all. And if the deaths of Jewish soldiers in one land were to be held of little account, then the Jewish fallen everywhere had made the ultimate sacrifice for naught. At the Paris conference, the assembled veterans proclaimed their love of each other's native land, and they did so as Jews, bound together in what German Jews had since the 19th century called a community of fate, a Schicksalgemeinschaft. The moment of assertion of the deepest patriotic sentiment coincided with a performance of transnationality, a transnationality that had underlain Jewish discourse on military service and combat, since the beginning of Jewish conscription. To be sure, during Europe's long 19th century, there were increasing numbers of individuals of Jewish origin who attenuated or severed ties with their communities and possessed little Jewish self-consciousness. But as I've argued here, the active claim of patriotic attachment, even when accompanied by the willingness to die in battle for one's native land, did not in and of itself demonstrate a loss of Jewish identity. Moreover, until World War I, and even at times during that horrific conflict, Jewish patriotism adhered to the universalist, tolerant language of liberal nationalism and even of pre-nationalist concepts of military service as an obligation towards the monarch, any monarch, in any land. Thank you. <laughs>